this has been a very emotional time for me as I begin transitioning out of this call that I have called home for 10 years that I deeply love and I start to envision my new call at Good Shepherd. I've been busy the last two and a half weeks or so packing up my office. I had this goal of getting the office completely moved over to Kenwood before the Holy Land trip. That way when I come home from our trip to the Holy Land, I don't have to be boxing up shelves and packing books away because I hope, I imagine folks will be popping in my last 10 days here. And I I didn't want to be distracted with trying to get a task done. I, I want to be able to be present those final 10 or 11 days with you. And as I've been packing up my office, I've been going down memory lane. It's amazing the things you find that have found their ways into the cracks and crevices of office drawers and bookshelves. And one of those things that I found actually predated my time here at Prince of Peace. It's just a a little tiny four by six um, painting, an oil painting, that was done by a man named Ronald English. You see, before I was called here uh, to Prince of Peace, I served one year down in Over the Rhine at First Lutheran Church. I wasn't yet ordained. I was finishing my seminary degree, but they were without a pastor. Their pastor had moved on to resurrection in Lebanon, Ohio at the time, and there were a number of uh, interim pastors rotating through First Lutheran. Over the Rhine wasn't yet um, redeveloped to the extent that it has been uh, today, and so the neighborhood was very much in transition. I was in transition, finishing school, awaiting a first call, and the community there at First Lutheran was in transition, wondering and waiting who will uh, be our permanent leadership here, at least for the foreseeable future. Ronald English was a member of that congregation. And the members of First Lutheran were eclectic. They still are eclectic. At the time, there were members who called over the Rhine home their entire lives. And uh, Ronald was one of them who had never left an eight square block radius around the church his entire life. Ronald was well into his 60s. And there were members of First Lutheran who were uh, recently moved into the uh, half a million dollar condos that were being developed above the storefronts. It was a very diverse community and it was this beautiful congregation uh, that gave us just a window into what the kingdom of heaven will look like. People of all different backgrounds, income levels, races coming together to worship God. And one day... During my first week filling in at First Lutheran Church, I hear this knock on the big church door. Big knocks. I'm a little bit nervous, to be honest with you. I had not spent a lot of time in the inner city, so I make my way to the door, and there's no peephole to look through to see who's on the other side. So I slowly crack the door open, and there's Ronald. A tall man with these tattered bags that he carried around everywhere he went. He said, Pastor, can I come in? I said, sure. So Ronald comes in and he sits down across from me and he says, Pastor, I have a question for you. Have you ever been called names? I said, what do you mean? He said, have you ever been called, you know, 
names. Have people ever said mean things to you? And I said, well, sure. And I told Ron about how during my childhood years, my elementary school years, and my adolescent years, I was picked on quite a bit. I hadn't hit my growth spurt. I was in speech therapy from kindergarten all the way through eighth grade. I still slur my S's a little bit, but my speech was really impaired at the time as a child. I told Ronald how I was picked on and made fun of because I, I couldn't pronounce things correctly. Well, joke is on, the joke's on all those bullies, right? Because now I speak for a living. Um, I told Ronald how some neighborhood boys who were a little bit older than me used to taunt me because my name, Lorne, sounded a whole lot like Lauren. And so I used to be uh, jeered and made fun of for having a girl's name. I even told Ronald how one time I was being bullied so, so hard and so frequently that I remember running into the house and yelling for my mom, 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 Mom. My mom was in the kitchen and she saw my tears and she got down. I still remember it vividly on her knees in the kitchen, arms out gave me this big hug and said, what they are telling you just isn't true. You are precious. I love you, my boy. I told Ron about my childhood pain, and that gave him permission to then open up. And after I'm sharing all of these stories, I, I finally dawned on me to ask Ronald, why do you ask? <laughs> Here I am telling you about my whole life. And he said, well, Pastor, I ask because everywhere I go in this neighborhood, I am made fun of. People call me stupid. People call me ugly because I suffer from schizophrenia. He said, I'm on medication. I, I try to get help, but, but out there, people call me all sorts of names. He said, but pastor, you need to know if you're going to be at this church, in this church, I'm called the child of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that I am a child of God? And I said, you better, you better bet I believe you're a child of God. He said, well, you know, the pastor that used to be here was really good. And he even told me once that I am the light of the world. Do you believe that, pastor? I said, well, you better believe I believe that, Ronald. He said, okay, you'll do. <laughs> Ronald was checking me out. But what Ronald reinforced for me that day is what Jesus was trying to reinforce for his disciples throughout all of his ministry. The reality is the world can be a cruel place. It can be cruel to children, to teenagers, to young adults, to adults. It can be cruel to those of us, those of you <laughs> that are aging and changing we know the names we've been called. Maybe you've been fortunate and you haven't had names or taunts directed at you from others, but you have an internal voice. You, you have a voice inside that, that speaks lies to you again and again. Why are you so dumb? Why can't you get it right? Why aren't you more this or that? External and internal voices in our world are always seeking to cut us down, to cheapen us, to demean us, to fragment us, to divide us, to separate us from our true identity. In Matthew chapter 5, we find the Sermon on the Mount. 
Last week we heard the first portion of the Sermon on the Mount. This week is just a continuation of that. Jesus hasn't traveled to a new region. There hasn't been a pause or a break in the dramatic action of the text. It's actually in the very next breath that we hear the words we had for today. But I think it's really important to set up Matthew 5 in context of Matthew chapters 3 and 4. I, help, I think that they help illuminate for us what Jesus is actually doing, what he's trying to instill in those that have ears to hear. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has just been baptized in Matthew 3. In Matthew 4, he's led out into the wilderness for 40 days and for 40 nights where he's tempted. He, he prays and he has to fast. He has to orient himself around his true identity that was declared in his baptism. Because in the baptism of Christ, God declares Jesus beloved. God names him. God says, you are my son. This is your identity. You are beloved, and with you, I am well pleased. And for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus will go. He will pray. He will fast. He will be tempted. And through the temptation, Jesus will meditate on his identity. I am God's son. I am light. I am love. And at the end of those 40 days, Jesus emerges from the wilderness and he gets to work right away. The first thing he does in Matthew is he gathers a crew of disciples and he invites them to come and follow him. The amazing thing about the people that Jesus chooses to come and be a part of his ministry is that it's an eclectic group of people who others in society could easily look past. Most rabbis would not call the group of disciples Jesus did to be their students, but Jesus does. He calls uh, brothers who are fishermen. He calls tax collectors. He, He calls people of ordinary means, of common ability to come and learn from him. And after he assembles the group, he gets busy at work. This is what it says in verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. He's baptized, he calls disciples, and he begins to heal. He begins to love. It's not written in the pages. But we know that Jesus didn't just heal people physically. By doing so, Jesus healed people emotionally and relationally. Because in the first century world, if you were an epileptic, if you were a paralytic, if you were a leper, your whole identity was wrapped up in your affliction. You would have been known as the one who can't walk, the one who has seizures. You would have been known as the one who is blind or lame. 
people would forget to see your true God-given identity. And when Jesus restored people to wholeness, he was also reminding them that they are beloved. They are more than their affliction. They are more than their disease. Jesus was helping the crowds and the multitudes see that the lame, the meek, the poor, those who cry out and hunger are more than those labels. They are children beloved by And in the very next breath, with all of this energy around as Jesus is healing, we're told, setting up the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus saw all of these crowds forming. Because an amazing thing happens when you embody light, when you embody love in the world, when you heal people physically, emotionally, relationally, well, people start to bring their cousins out. (laughs) You got to see this person. You can't believe what's happening. So now all of these crowds are around. Did you know that when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he was actually looking to retreat away and catch his breath? This is what it says. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, you could interpret that, that Jesus saw the crowd, and he said, I'm going to get to the high lofty place like a pulpit so that I have a great amplification of my voice. I don't think that's what's happening. I think Jesus sees the crowds. He's tired from all of his work, and he says, I'm going to climb up the mountain. They won't follow me there. I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to rest for a minute. And it's precisely in that moment when his disciples gather around him that Jesus looks at his disciples and he's trying to reinforce a message to them. He says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. You see the work I'm doing? They're brand new disciples. They really don't know what his ministry is about yet in Matthew's gospel. They've simply sat in the shadows and watched him heal and teach. And now it's Jesus' opportunity to reinforce the point of his gospel. All of those people that the world discounts, throws away, looks down upon, they are blessed. And then we get today's lesson. Jesus then looked straight into the eyes of his disciples who I'm sure were flabbergasted, trying to soak in his teaching. And he looks at them and he says, you, Peter, you, James, you, John, you, Judas, you, Melva, you, Ken, you, Paula, you are the light of the world. You are light. And nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel basket. You put the light on a lampstand so that all can see, so shine. What Jesus is doing here is genius. You see, the celebrity around his ministry was already growing. Look at this Jesus, the one who can heal, the one that can teach, the one that can preach. Jesus is trying to direct the attention and the energy away from him as celebrity healer. And he's trying to reinforce for his disciples that they too are light. All through the gospel of Matthew, all through the rest of the gospels, Jesus is trying to equip 
empower and unleash the disciples to embody God's reign of justice for the world. Jesus is not trying to get through his earthly ministry with all the focus and all the attention on him. It's quite the opposite. Jesus is trying to reinforce and help people reimagine their own God-given sacredness to be agents of healing, life, and love in the world. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you, Linda, you are light. You, Nash, you are light. The beautiful thing about the construct, the grammar here, is the you is plural. He's saying you, church, are the light of the world. You are salt. What a beautiful message for us to remember on a weekend when we welcome new members. There's 16 people that are joining Prince of Peace and sharing in the ministry this weekend. What an important message for us to be reminded of as this congregation goes through a pastoral transition. Where I will be moving to another congregation and you will be awaiting and praying for a new leader to come and join Pastor Jonathan and join the staff. What an amazing message Jesus has for us that the true light of the world, the light of this congregation is not any one single leader. It is the shared ethic, the shared value that you all share in being the light. And I could preach for another two hours about the ways that you have been light, not just in this community, around the world, but the ways you have been light for me. Over the last 10 years, you have embodied God's love and God's light for me. When I was a brand new pastor trying to figure out how to do this thing called ministry, stumbling over words to speak in counseling sessions, getting it wrong more than I would get it right, the way that you embodied grace and love and laughter at some of my hubris, my arrogance, <laughs> you've been light. The way that you've prayed for my family for these last 10 years. You've nurtured my children. You've, you've embraced our imperfections the way that you stood in the gap with Becca and I when she was diagnosed during her pregnancy and told that Luke would be born missing part of his brain. You have been light. You have been light to me in more ways than I could ever share. And here's the truly amazing thing. You are light even when you get it wrong. For God knows that we are simultaneously saint and sinner. We are bound and free. And so this I am certain of. As I move to a new congregation, I will grieve deeply the ways in which we are no longer partnered in the same way. But I will celebrate deeply knowing that your light will continue to shine in and through this place for years and years and years to come. So in moments when you feel insecure, doubtful, weak, on those days when your inner voice or the voices of others are coming at you from all directions, attempting to cheapen you, demean you, divide you from your true sacredness, I want you to remember that our God looks straight at you, Stephanie, straight at you, Dan, 
And God says, you are light. Don't you ever forget it. Now go and shine. So may you cling to your faith in the crucified and risen Lord this day and every day. May you know that you are light and that God loves you. And I do too. Amen.